Land, Water, Wildlife, a podcast produced by the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, connecting you to nature. Thanks for listening to the third episode of our new podcast. I'm Barbara Lindstrom, Communications Director for the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, better known as SCCF. In these times of teleworking, we're producing this podcast from our homes on our phones so that we can bring you conversations about the work we do to conserve and protect the coastal habitats and aquatic resources on Sanibel and Captiva and in the surrounding watershed. Today, we are celebrating World Turtle Day and are joined by two of our island's leading experts when it comes to turtles. Together, they co-authored a reference book in 2013 called Amphibians and Reptiles of Sanibel and Captiva Islands, Florida, which is considered the go-to guide for understanding the ever-changing life history of our islands, Herpetofauna. Since they are separated by a generation in age, these two have collectively worked in the field documenting the changing ecosystems in which these turtles live for seven decades. We have local legend Charles LaBeouf on the line who was stationed at JN Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge for more than 30 years, was a founding board member of SCCF and the founder of what is now our Sea Turtle Monitoring Program. He's also authored several books about the natural history of our islands. Welcome, Charles. Thanks, Barbara. Happy to be here. Good to have you. And we're also joined by his co-author, Chris Leckowitz, SCCF's Wildlife and Habitat Management Director since 2002, uh, when he began keeping an inventory of our wildlife on our islands. As SCCF's resident herpetologist, Chris has conducted extensive research on Florida box turtles and on ornate diamondback terrapins. Uh, welcome, Chris. Hi, how you doing? Good, good to have you guys. So today is World Turtle Day, which is an annual event that's been taking place since 2000 that was founded by the American Tortoise Rescue. And the purpose of World Turtle Day is to educate people about the things that they can do to protect the habitats of turtles and tortoises. And it's also a celebration of the joy that these reptiles bring to so many people. Um, so how about you two? Uh, turtles are something that obviously bring you joy. You've devoted a lot of your life to them. Yes. Charles? <laughs> True. <laughs> okay. Good. And sea turtles get a lot of the attention, especially right now during nesting season. But today we're going to focus our attention on the lesser known and celebrated other turtles that live on our islands. So according to your book, we have about a dozen species of terrestrial turtles to talk about. Uh, Charles, when you first came to Sanibel in 1958, what were some of the first turtles you encountered beyond the sea turtles? Well, I think the first individual I encountered on Sanibel was a gopher tortoise on the lighthouse property. We had several resident tortoises there in those early days before all this uh, vegetative changes to the island. And uh, these were, were friendly critters that wandered around the lighthouse compound. And I think later on, my kids even had them named. <laughs> and uh, in your book, uh, you write about how you also discovered after you arrived on the island that um, Gopher and rice was a common dish for some of the families on the island? Well, that's true. I, I, I knew that before I came to Sanibel, but uh, 
it was a, a basic food by by many people, and uh, it, it still is occasionally. I'm sure, indiscreetly, someone will find a gopher and uh, and consume it. Sadly. And um, what about you, Chris? When you first came to the islands, uh, what what turtles first grabbed your attention? Well, uh, back then. I was very excited to come to Sanibel and I'm from the upper Midwest in Chicago and I knew the turtles very well in that area. And as far as South Florida turtles, I didn't have a lot of experience, but I did have a lot of literature. I I knew almost everything that there was to be known about them at the time (laughs) from reading. And I was very excited to get to know the turtles of the Island and the area. And I, I believe the first turtle that I saw when I got here uh, was a Florida softshell turtle. It was actually going across the road. So I I stopped my car, obviously, on the side of the road, and I took lots of pictures. Oh, and, and that's a turtle that, in your book, uh, Charles mentioned that he didn't find one of those until 1965, after he'd been on the islands for a while. That's true. We mustn't forget that when I first uh, arrived on Sanibel, there was limited uh, open water, surface water. Mosquito control had just crossed uh, Beach Road and got into the Sanibel Slough. Uh, real estate lakes, there was only, let me see, Palm Lake and the uh, the rocks, West Rocks was under development. So other than a few temporary seasonal ponds, there was no surface freshwater on the island. So turtle habitat, freshwater turtle habitat, was extremely limited. So uh, so the alterations to Sanibel have, have influenced our turtle population pretty much here. Um, that, it, does that include the gopher tortoises as well? No, the gopher tortoise habitat has dwindled because they're a terrestrial upland animal that prefers high elevated habitat that's well drained so of course that's always the first to go when there's uh, housing development so gopher habitat was reduced at the same time uh, freshwater turtle habitat was increased and then of course what people were doing with turtles and continue to do with turtles influences populations too Um, you wrote about how gopher tortoises ended up on Sanibel from other places in the 50s and 60s um, after the Edison Pageant of Lights annual gopher derby? Right. The the gene pool of gopher tortoises on Sanibel is completely skewed. During the Edison Pageant of Light, people would haul gopher tortoises from as far away as Georgia to uh, use them in the gopher races during the Edison festivities. And after that, th- those were done, the, uh, the person that uh, that developed the gopher races, he hauled them over here to Sanibel and released them so they'd be safe. It's hard to imagine that um, anything like that could take place in this day and age, right, Chris? Yeah, that's right. I mean, in, in the news over the last few months, there's been many organizations who are trying to stop turtle races in the U.S. Even now, 
the issue that a, that a lot of people have with that is that they're taking turtles out of the wild, mostly box turtles, and then they hold them for a certain amount of time so they have enough of them for these races. And then when the races are over, they let them go again, but they're not letting them go exactly where they came from. And then they've been exposed to all these other box turtles and even sometimes up other turtles like wood turtles that are a protected animal in, in every state. The state agencies don't like that they're taking protected animals for the races. The people who are worried about a disease are worried that when you hold all these turtles in small containers for a long period of time that they may be transmitting germs or viruses that some populations have but other populations don't have and then you're letting them all go again wow so uh, but in florida you wouldn't be able to race turtles in the this day and age would you well yeah actually that does happen there's a celebration up in north florida it's called cooter fest and huh. it's just like we have Swamp Cabbage Fest down here and Mango Fest. They have mm-hmm. Cooter Fest. And I've heard that there have been races there. I don't know if, if that's still happening. But in Virginia, the last article I saw said that there are turtle races still happening. And it's huh. it's multiple states that are doing this. So with what we know these days about the spread of diseases, a lot of people just don't think it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't, but on Sanibel, uh, we have laws and or an ordinance in place that would prohibit that, don't we? Oh, yeah. Uh, Sanibel a- actually has its own ordinance on turtles that was made back in the 1980s. The city of Sanibel came up with rules about gopher tortoises, about how they're a protected animal and you can't just relocate them anywhere that you want. So, Sanibel Code actually has rules on this. And one of those sections, which is section 10-6D, actually says all turtles on Sanibel are protected. So that's been an ordinance since the 1980s. With everything that's been happening in the world uh, with turtle trafficking and the things that have happened in our area, fines are going to be put on that upwards of possibly $5,000 for violating those laws. Is that something, Charles, that went on at all back in the day here on Sanibel, this poaching? There wasn't uh, much poaching. Well, turtles, freshwater turtles and gopher tortoises weren't protected in those early days. So it was perfectly legal for a resident to harvest a gopher turtle or take a box turtle and keep it in a pen in its yard as a pet. But uh, in the late 70s, there was a group of conservation-minded people here on the island, basically led by the late George Campbell, mm-hmm. who worked to, uh, to protect not only turtles, but other species. And I believe that I was still on the city council when the first uh, ordinance was brought to council by the, I believe it was the Wildlife Committee. Chris may have the exact date. Were you pretty surprised, Charles, when you heard about um, the turtle uh, trafficking ring that was busted this fall that that Chris uh, helped the FWC with? Well, I sort of knew it was going on, and I was surprised that it was such a large, 
large bust. Uh, I was proud of FWC for for pulling it off and taking those characters out of the uh, illicit market. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a pretty that was a large number of turtles, wasn't it, Chris? Yeah, it 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 was into the thousands. That's just how many they caught them with. They've been doing this for years. So it's hard for me to imagine how many turtles actually left Santa. All that we know of are the ones that they got caught with. Like I said, it's been going on at least five years, likely more. And it's all because of this world turtle crisis that we're in right now. It's not just the U.S., it's the whole world. Turtles are getting taken for food, for traditional medicines, and for the pet trade. It's a global problem right now. It's so bad that turtles just entered the number one slot for the most at-risk vertebrate on Earth. I mean, they just surpassed primates. So turtles are in a lot of trouble worldwide right now. So what are we doing to protect the box turtles then that were released here on Sanibel after that poaching ring was busted? I help process a lot of these turtles the Florida box turtles all went back to Sanibel. Uh, not all of those t- turtles were from Sanibel. Some of them were from Fort Myers. Some of them were from outside Fort Myers, but they were all local. Mm-hmm. And there was no place for them to go. All the usual places that take confiscations throughout the U.S. are just overloaded with turtles. They can't take anymore. There's so many busts happening on a regular basis. There's nowhere for these turtles to go. We don't like to mix up the genetics. Animals have evolved in a certain area. They have certain traits. But we don't know the genetics of all these different locations so there's only so many things that we could do with these turtles we can take a chance and release them somewhere that we think is safe if one of these places that takes confiscated turtles is willing to take them we can do that or what happens sometimes is that these things are euthanized because there's nowhere for them to go Mm. and it's just sad there's actually a new organization starting right now that I'm a part of. It's made up of turtle biologists from throughout the U.S. We're trying to figure out what we could do with all these turtles that are confiscated. We want to get them back in the wild. And what we're thinking of are areas that have been hit a long time ago that no longer have a certain type of turtle but can have that type of turtle. We're thinking about releases back into those areas to try to repopulate just a waste of resources to not have anywhere for these animals to go. Wow. That's more of a crisis than uh, I'm sure many people realize. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, there's 360 types of turtles in the world. Only seven of those are sea turtles. Most countries focus on sea turtles because a turtle that everybody loves, everybody knows you want sea turtles in the ocean but a lot of these other turtles kind of get forgotten about but now these odd turtles that most people don't know about they're highly desired right now and those are the turtles that are getting taken and those are the turtles that need the most help and specifically on our islands those are the box turtle right now the box turtles the diamondback harapins are the ones that are highly desired Also, mud turtles. We have Florida mud turtles and striped mud turtles. Mm -hmm. Right now, those seem to be the ones that are being 
taken. But over the last 20 years, that has changed several times. I remember in like 2007, 8 and 9, Florida softshells, you know, were hot. So those were the ones that that everybody was catching to sell. And that moved into Florida snapping turtles. All of a sudden, those are worth a lot of money. And then it moved over to terrapins and then box turtles. It's just, it's a market that goes up and down. So how would, if someone saw turtle poaching, like what would be, what would be some red flags that might indicate turtle poaching taking place? Some red flags. People walking through habitats that have a backpack mm-hmm. uh, or, or like a bag when they're looking under things or just doing something that you don't normally see. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you're on the beach and you see people walk up and down the beach, most of the people are looking at the water. Mm-hmm. When you see people up in the vegetation walking around, that's mm-hmm. a red flag. Mm-hmm. If you're out near a public trail, and you see somebody wandering off the trail, looking around at the ground, flipping things over, that's mm. a red flag. Okay. Right How do you report a suspicious activity? Okay. After this whole thing went down, I had a meeting with all the major agencies on Sanibel. Mm-hmm. And what we came up with is if you see somebody who looks like they're doing something that they shouldn't with turtles, the best person the call is the police department on the city of Sanibel. I was thinking maybe Charles could take us back to when he first encountered like the uh, striped mud turtle. That was pretty prevalent when you first arrived, right, Charles? Well, I, I would find them uh, usually at night on roads, uh, doing road surveys and looking for whatever I could find in, in the herp field to add to the refuges. Uh, herp list and I'd find both striped muds and Florida muds on the roads so mm-hmm. I, I knew they were a resident species and then occasionally a walk along ditches when the ditches dried up and there would be small pools of water and I would find them in uh, in those pools of water. They're a very sort of a sedentary species they're, they're not a basking turtle mm-hmm. so you find them when you find them. Okay. Then, Chris, you also mentioned the cooters. Cooters go back to when you first arrived as well. Is that right, Charles? Yeah. When, when I found my first insulator, it was actually uh, coming out of the bay into the mangroves on Woodring Point Road. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to keep in mind that the Caloosahatchee was a distribution mechanism for many herps, uh, Hmm. water turtles, snakes, lizards. During extremely fresh years, amphibians would uh, float down the river on vegetation and eventually, if they were fortunate, be first on on Sanibel. So the Caloosahatchee is responsible for many of the species that occur on the island. And now the peninsula cooter um, Chris, you found that to be one of the more common turtles. Correct? Yeah, when I first got here, uh, the first thing I did was go to waterways where there were logs sticking out of the water to see what kind of turtles were up on the logs getting sun. And the most common thing I saw in the early 2000s were those cooters. I saw 
the Florida red belly turtle, which is also a cooter, and the peninsula cooters. But what I also found out there were sliders. Now, sliders are these exotic turtle to Sanibel, but not exotic to the U.S. Sliders are turtles that were widely sold in pet stores and dime stores in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. And they were such a popular pet that millions and millions of these were kept as pets, and many were released when they got big. Well, these turtles are highly adaptable, and they're found all over the U.S. now, where historically they were only found in the Midwest, from like southern Illinois down to east Texas and as far east as Alabama. Now they're found throughout the country and throughout the world on every continent except for Antarctica. Wow. And they're a nuisance in many places because they outcompete the native turtle that's there. Like many countries, you know, only have like one or two turtles. And if they have one aquatic turtle, these reddered sliders get into their habitat and they dominate. We do have sliders in Florida. We have a subspecies of it called the yellow-bellied slider, which is only native to North Florida, but they're found all over. I have them in, in my backyard because they've escaped as pets or they were released. Now, Charles has a story about how yellow belly sliders actually got to Sanibel. I'd, for, I'd forgotten that one. I knew there was something <laughs> that I could, I could connect to. Not long after the, the causeway opened, I had befriended a couple of guys from the University of Florida, and we'd go off on collecting trips. And, and they came down to Sanibel to uh, to look for something. I've forgotten just what. And they had a, a sack full of yellow-bellied sliders, and uh, they were tired of hauling them around. So they decided, unbeknownst to me, I, I learned later that they turned them loose in the Sanibel River, 16 of them of different sexes. They turned them loose in the, oh. in the Sanibel River behind oh. what then was the uh, Villa Capri Motel. It's, it's next to, uh, in behind, the roof, that part of the river system is behind where what used to be the Jacarandas located. Oh. And they dispersed in every nook and cranny of, of uh, the Sanibel River. And, and then about I guess it was in the in the early seventies we started finding little uh, yellow-bellied spiders on the roads. And and so have those disrupted the native turtle populations? Do you think? I don't know if they've disrupted it. I can't say that, but I remember when I got here in two thousand two, and I used to see them, but now I see them all the time. Huh. They have really exploded. We also have red-eared sliders on the island. So red-eared sliders are the turtle that was widely sold. It's just a subspecies of the yellow belly. So they can interbreed mm -hmm. at will. And in the wild, they do. Oh. And on Sanibel, we have yellow belly sliders, red-eared sliders, and we have intergrades of both. So you, mm. you can find turtles that look a little like each of those. Oh. They are by far the most common thing I see now. I'm still seeing cooters and Florida red bellies and soft shells, but it's mostly sliders now. Huh. There's probably some competition going on. These adult cooters are herbivorous. They're mostly eating plants where sliders 
are omnivorous, eating plants and animals. So they're not directly huh. competing. But like the green iguanas, they just become extremely huh. common and become a nuisance. And huh. they are taking available habitat of the stuff that should be here. Yeah, sounds like they're taking over the logs. The yeah, yeah. I mean, there, mm-hmm. I, there isn't a body of water on Sanibel that's fresh where I haven't seen sliders. So they're everywhere. What, what other, have there been any other non-native turtles that have showed up over the years? Yes, I've found several types of tortoises on the island. I found a redfoot tortoise. Mm-hmm. I found a spurthi tortoise. I found a Greek tortoise. Wow. Uh, throughout the year. So when people arrive to Sanibel, they see that sign that I think Charles made a long time ago. It says Sanctuary Island. And they think <laughs> that Sanctuary Island means, hey, I can release my pets here. <laughs> I've talked to several people that have admitted that they've released turtles on the island. Not six months ago, I had this lady come in our office and she had two turtles in a bucket. And she goes, can you tell me a good pond? on Sanibel or Lake where I could let these go. And I looked in the bucket and one of them was a redhead slider and the other one was a Mississippi map turtle. (laughs) And I'm like, where did you get these? She goes, well, I got these at a pet store a year or two ago and they're too big now. I just want a safe place to let them go. She goes, how about that pond on the side of Bailey's? I'm like, you can't let these go. I mean, one, it's a state law that you can't release any non-native animal into the wild. And two, a redhead slider is a prohibited species. I mean, there's special laws against it. You can't have these as pets. And I said, Mississippi map turtles aren't even from Florida. I'm like, you can't let these go. And she said, well, I've been releasing turtles here for 20 years. She goes, every time I just, I buy turtles, I raise them up and then I let them go. Oh. And I'm like, I'm like, you can't do this. And she's like, well, and she kind of winked at me and she goes, well, can you just tell me a safe place? And, I, you know, I've got other people in the office listening to me and, and they're trying to scatter you know, because oh. they don't want to get involved. And I'm like, you can't let these go. And she goes, my son's a biologist. He never told me that it's illegal. I'm like, your son's a biologist and he's telling you it's okay to let these go. Now, that's not the first experience I've had. It's just a very common thing that people let turtles go. That's just a big no-no these days. If you look in the news in the last year, they had this virus get into the St. John's River and it killed, I don't know, hundreds of soft-shell turtles. And they have no idea where that came from. It's very possible that it was from a pet turtle. Once turtles come out of the wild and are exposed to other turtles, it's just not safe to let them go again. That's what most turtle biologists will say. That's just one person that's been doing that. I'm sure lots of people have been releasing yeah, that was, turtles. Um, it's nice that she came to the office, so you have a, a teaching moment oh. now. <laughs> oh, I did. I mean, I spent 20 minutes. All of us could tell she was going to let these turtles go regardless. How people think about it is their pet, and they just want it mm-hmm. to have a happy life. Mm-hmm. They don't think about the repercussions of actually letting it go, what it could do to native turtle populations. All they see is that, wow, Sanibel is really nice, you know, all these lakes, it's got protected lands, and my turtle's going to be safe. But they don't think about 
what might happen. So that, that brings up um, the importance of these, these native turtles, you know, especially in, to the biodiversity on the islands. How, how, Charles, do these turtles serve our overall ecosystem? Well, I, I think basically, uh, other than doing what they do as individual species, they contribute to the the welfare of other wildlife. They are, unfortunately they're they're a food source for other creatures, and it's all part of the, the natural balance of things. Mm-hmm. The golden tortoise may uh, scatter seeds and produce uh, plants in proper habitat. Well, we could bring up how it's a keystone species, and many animals depend upon their burrows mm. in, in order to survive. When we have wildfires or controlled burns, many animals know to go down those burrows as a retreat. I believe over 300 species have been documented throughout the range of the gopher tortoise to actually use those burrows. And there's certain animals that only live in like- If you're talking about aquatic turtles, turtles are a benefit in the fact that they eat a lot of the dead or a dying fish or like a bird, like a duck dies or whatever. Snapping turtles and soft shell turtles will get rid of that for you. So they kind of clean the bottom of the water. And um, so the snapping turtle, that um, gets its name because of its bite, right? (laughs) Have either of you ever been bit by a snapping turtle? Yes. Yes. Is it very painful? Uh-huh. It can be. It depends how much they get you. If the area is so large that they can't squeeze, it's not as bad as if they get you mm-hmm. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> if, if they just grab your skin instead of like your whole arm, huh. yeah, that that hurts a lot and they can take that off. Yeah, that little piece of skin. An important comment is that our local snapping turtles are not alligator snapping turtles. Many people are confused and call our local snappers alligator snapping turtles, but they're not. The true alligator snapper doesn't come this far south. Does it bite even harder, the alligator snapping turtle? Oh, Oh. okay. Okay. Yes. It's a much larger animal. You know, like the record Florida snapping turtle in Florida is around 49 pounds. The record alligator snapping turtle is about 200 pounds. Whoa. Yeah. That's huge. Uh, I think it's even larger. It's a huge turtle, but it only lives in large river systems, starting with the Suwannee River. The most southern branch of the Suwannee River is near Gainesville. It's called the Santa Fe River. That's as far south as alligator snapping huh. turtles go. Wow. And um, speaking of alligators, uh, in your book again, I read that the Florida red-bellied cooter often has tooth marks and scratches on it. From alligators, is that do alligators consume these turtles? Oh, they consume all of all of those species, all of the freshwater. Yes, if you see a large turtle walking across you, like a hard-shelled turtle, like a slider, or especially a cooter, it's very rare to find one that does not have alligator marks, where an alligator huh. has tried to eat it. So that so they really help sustain. It's good food for the alligators. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. The cooters get back at the alligators because the red-bellied and the peninsula cooter both use alligator nests as nesting sites. Oh, okay. It's very smart because, you know, the Florida red belly 
cooter will wait on the side of the alligator nest for the female alligator to leave and go get food. And when she's gone, she'll hurry up and she'll dig her nest in the alligator mound where the alligator oh. eggs are at. She hurries up and lays them and then leaves so that uh, the female will actually guard that nest. And then the turtle eggs oh, are also wow. guarded. That, that's adaptation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So you you have a couple of special um, turtle projects going on on the island. Uh, one is with the uh, the terrapins. When did yes. that project begin, and and what is it about? What does it involve? Well, when I first got here, the turtle I wanted to see the most was a diamondback terrapin. I I've been enamored with them for a long time. My favorite turtles in the world are called map turtles. And the closest relative to a map turtle is a diamondback terrapin. And they look a lot mm -hmm. like them. But terrapins are a unique animal in the fact that they only live in brackish water. So it's the only turtle that we have in the Western Hemisphere that exclusively lives in brackish mm. water. And we have this habitat here on Sanibel. We have mangrove. Now, their range is from Massachusetts, right on the coast all the way down to the Florida Keys, all the way up the west coast of Florida, and as far west as hmm. Texas, just along the coast. So they only live in, in the brackish water. Most of their habitat, all the way down the eastern seaboard, is all salt marsh. When you get down to Miami and the Keys, you lose all the salt marshes and you get mangrove. And as you go up the west coast, you still have mangrove. When you get past Tampa then the salt marshes start to show up. And by the time you get to the panhandle, it's all salt marsh again, all the way to Texas. Terrapins are the only ones that live in this brackish water all the time. And in some areas, if you're salt water, like if they have a choice of living in a freshwater lake or huh. seawater, they so what, always go what to is the, the project that you're doing? You're... So it's the Diamondback Terrapin Project. When I first got here, I... I looked for them oh. several years. I could not find them. I went all through Ding Darling in kayaks, up and down all these ditches. I just could not find them. Did, you, very did Charles, elusive. did you used to see them? Oh, yeah. I'd occasionally out in the refuge, and I'd sometimes find hatchlings along the lighthouse oh, wow. beach. I believe I gave you a tip, didn't I, Chris, of where to find a population? You did. But how I actually found a population to study is that in 2005, a couple who was out photographing birds came into our office and they asked a guy by the name of Brad Smith, who was also a bird guy, what kind of bird they had in a photograph. And he was showing them all these photographs and I was on the side. And then there was a picture of a turtle and Brad tapped me on the shoulder and he goes, hey, well, what kind of turtle is this? And I looked at it, <laughs> I was like, that's a terrapin. I'm like, where did you see this? And I'm not going to tell you where it was because <laughs> it's my best population. But, uh, oh, I went right there. I wasn't there three minutes and I had already seen one. So I, I saw my first terrapin. And then I went back there many times over the years. And when I finally knew enough about them and I, after I planned on how I'm going to do this project, I applied for the permits in 2012 and I've been working hmm. there ever since. And, and you've, uh, you've seen some changes in those terrapins over the years. After I found out how I could catch them, how I was going to mark them and just their habits, 
I went to other places on the island and I found more sites. Every year we try to go and trap in new areas to see if we could find a new populations. And we have. Interesting enough, this population on Sanibel that we've been monitoring right after that large red tide event where all the sea turtles were washing up and there was just a great amount of loss. Some terrapins also washed up from that. So they were affected by that red tide. And one of my populations on Sanibel just dropped off. I used to catch turtles there all the time. And then all of last year, I caught zero turtles. And the end of the year prior to that, when that red tide came in, I couldn't find any turtles there. So this is the first year that we actually saw turtles using that creek again. So red tide definitely And these are the effect. turtles. Back in the day, Charles, people used to put blue crab pots out. I remember um, Grace Whitehead telling me they'd put one out there in the canal right behind their home on Lindgren, and they'd collect all kinds of blue crabs. But they'd also, uh, didn't the uh, terrapin get into these traps? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a definite problem. I, I recall one time years ago, I was up in Matlachee Pass, and I was inspecting all of the Indian mounds on public domain land. And I pulled a trap next to this one one little island, and they were decomposing. It was almost full of decomposing diamondback mm. terrapin. So it, it's a definite problem. Everywhere the diamondback terrapin ranges in conjunction with, with blue crabbing. And I think Chris has some information on the uh, pending new design of, uh, of crab traps. Yes, it's been a big issue throughout the range, but it's most well known from the East Coast, especially around Chesapeake Bay. Some of these traps can have 100 or more dead terrapin, and it's a problem. So what we came up with is a BRD, bycatch reduction device. All this is is a plastic rectangle that we install on the crab trap in front of the funnel. So each crab trap has like a way for crabs to enter on all four sides. So if you put one of these BRDs in front of the funnel on each side, it stops larger terrapins from entering that trap. These traps are on the bottom of the water. And sometimes they aren't pulled up for a day or more. You know, a turtle can't hold its breath. Well, what makes them go into the trap? The bait that they put in the trap to catch all the crabs. It's normally fish of some type or squid. So it attracts blue crabs in the trap, but it also attracts terrapins. The thing is, you know, the crabs can stay underwater forever. The terrapins can't. The awful thing that happens is that when these traps start to get old, some people don't Mm. take them out of the water. They just leave them there. Mm. So we call that a ghost trap. What happens is anything that's in that trap, you know, starts to decay the smell of that attracts more terrapins, and terrapins continue to go in, die, start to rot, and then it attracts more terrapins in, and they continue to catch terrapins until the trap actually oh. breaks apart. So there's several times a year when FWC will say, okay, everybody take all their traps out of the water for a few days, and you have to take your traps out, and then they go around in boats and look for abandoned traps. So by installing these BRDs on the traps, it stops the adult females and large males from getting in the trap. 
but it does not stop crabs from getting in. So a lot of the crabbers don't like this because they think it's going to reduce the amount of crabs that enter the trap. And we've already done the experiment. It's not true. The same amount of crabs go into the trap. I forget if the number is 76 or 74 percent, but it stops about 75 percent of the terrapins from getting in the trap. So small terrapins are still able to get in and drown. But what it's doing is it's saving the adults, the ones that are actually so it's not, it sounds like uh, it's getting ground. closer to being a mandatory. Yes, there is an official mission right now to FWC. So they've already responded and they're looking at it. So what we want is to make it mandatory to have all of these traps have the BRDs on them. Now, there are several other states where it is mandatory. It's just Florida is not one of them. And Florida has the most habitat of any other state. Their whole range is from Massachusetts all the way down the tech, just on the coast. And there's seven subspecies of terrapins. Five of those are found in Florida. So we have the most subspecies and the most available habitat for these. It's hard to even think about how many terrapins Mm. are drowning on a daily basis from Mm. crab traps. Well, it sounds like you're doing something to change that. Uh, You've seen a lot of uh, changes over the years, Charles, that have had positive impacts on our wildlife, such as that. Yes, there's been a great change over the last... 60, yeah, 70 years. I mean, when you, when you first started here, like you said, it was you could harvest turtles. Oh yeah, there was nothing mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it. People ate soft shell turtles and gophers and probably a few cooters. Huh. Okay, I think we have not mentioned the name of one of these turtles yet. The Florida chicken turtle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is an enigma. In the U.S., if you consider all types of turtles, I believe there's 59 turtles in the U.S. Chicken turtle is definitely the oddest of those turtles. It just has a, a weird life history. Just everything about it. Even its it name. Is uh-huh. Different. <laughs> I think you could probably guess as to how it Tastes got like its chicken. Name. <laughs> Tastes like chicken. A- exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what people thought. I'm not going to speak about chicken turtles elsewhere because they do odd things out to it. It's what we call an ephemeral turtle. Ephemeral means that it lives in wetlands that dry up and are dry for a certain amount of time throughout the year. We have two turtles on the island that I consider ephemeral. One are chicken turtles and the other one is the Florida mud turtle. We only see these turtles when water levels are high. At the end of July, August, September, when we've had a lot of our rain and all the wetlands start to fill up, when the water gets to a certain level, chicken turtles and Florida mud turtles emerge. If you look at our captures of these guys, it's always those times of the year. When water is high, then they're out and about. When the water starts to dry up, then they go underground and they estivate. So we were lucky enough to actually find one of these nesting mm-hmm. on Sanibel in January this year, which total luck. After we watched that turtle lay eggs, I put a radio transmitter on it and we've been following that turtle around and it just left the area where it laid eggs and went right into a wetland and it stayed there until March. And when the water dried up, it dug a hole huh. and it's underground 
right now. It's been sitting there. So is there that what makes it so March. rare? Is that it's just so rarely seen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Charles will tell you that he used to see them on a regular basis, right? Oh, yeah. But it was during during hot water. When I first got here in 2002, the last known documented chicken turtle was late 1980s. So from 2002 until 2007, I was looking for them, and I did not see them. Actually, in 2007, a biologist and I were out on one of our preserves sampling for Sanibel race rats. So we had all of our live rat traps out there, and it was right alongside a wetland, and she found a dead turtle. And she goes, hey, there's a dead turtle over here. And I go over there. And it was the shell of a chicken turtle. I could not believe it. I was like, here's oh, the missing turtle. And it's only been dead, I would say, about a month because it wasn't all the way broken apart yet. I was guessing at around a month. So there was a live chicken turtle there. So took that shell, took those bones, and and they're now oh. in the Florida Museum of Natural History. But we didn't get another sighting until I believe it was 2012 or 2013. It's, it's in the book. Charles found one. Over by Sanibel Garden. Yeah, Island and Road, right. So that was the first live one. Two years later, we were doing a fire, a controlled burn around a marsh uh, behind the nature center. One was in the fire line, partially exposed, like dug down in the mud. That was another one. So we knew they were around. And then Audrey started working for us. And and she was out on the beach doing a shorebird survey, and she brought me a shell of, of a hatchling turtle that she thought was a cooter. And I looked at it, and it's a baby chicken turtle yeah. shell, and I still have that on, on my shore. shelf. They are around. Hardly it's just seen. They're, Interesting. They're hardly seen. And then the other project that you have going is with the Florida box turtles, right? Yeah. I'm going to say it again. Back when I got here in 2002, I had three items on my priority list. Even before I started, as I was starting to pack my things to to make the trek down the Sanibel, I was like, there's three animals found in that area that I need to do something with. I knew that before I even got there. One was the Diamondback Terrapin, two was the Florida Box Turtle, and three was the Eastern Indigo Snake. So box turtles are very important animals in the fact that they have very long life How long? Uh, oh, the largest uh, study ever done on Florida box turtles mm-hmm. was on Egmont Key by Ken Dodd. And he estimated that the average Florida box turtle lives between wow. 60 and 70 years. But they have the possibility of living a lot longer. Actually, the oldest box turtle known huh. is 138 years old. And that's an eastern box turtle from up in the northeast. Our box turtles have the possibility of living over a century here on Sanibel. So I knew I needed to start marking them as soon as possible so we could start getting some Mm -hmm. longevity records. And I was going to do research on them. So that first year I was here, I had already caught four or five box turtles. I marked Yeah, They're all hit by people occasionally. Sanibel is a unique Mm -hmm. place. I see most people stop. On Sanibel. You know, I go to parts mm. of the country where it's a sport to actually see how many turtles you can hit on the road. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've seen people swerve to hit them on purpose. Sanibel, I rarely see that. If someone hits a turtle, it's mm-hmm. probably because they don't see it. 
but I see most people stop because I think most people here have a. Mm-hmm. I think we've all seen some people stop and then carry the turtle to the side of the road, right? Well, you know, I have no problem with that. If someone's, even if it's a protected animal, if you're going to help it across the road, and I would say that most FWC law enforcement guys, like if they saw you stop and take a gopher tortoise out of the road and move it to the other side, there's a very low mm-hmm. chance that they're going to fine you for we should, holding a protected we should, species. We should say that with a note of caution, however, because there have been people that have been good Samaritans and stopped to rescue a turtle. And here in Lee County, over the decades, we've had a few fatalities when we oh. struck by cars. If you're wanting to help a turtle, be sure you pull off the road and make sure traffic well, That's a good point. You know, I remember um, in George, I think it was in George Campbell's book, he wrote something about um, how there were, weren't there some plans to build like wildlife corridors under Sand Cap Road at some point? Do you remember that? Well, they, (laughs) (laughs) I can't help but laughing about that one. Yeah, the the first one, Campbell insisted this be done. And uh, I don't know what degree it was finally determined by the powers that be, but the first one is just north of the, uh, the four-way stop, uh, Sand Cap Road, Tarpon Bay, and Palm Ridge Road. As you're going toward Captiva from that intersection, there's a about a 24-inch culvert under the road, and that was the first oh, okay. crossing. And when I went to check it, it was flooded. Critters just couldn't go through it unless they were a aquatic curve. Huh. So it does exist. I wondered about that. Yeah, but yeah. it wasn't done oh, okay. in a serious way. I did uh, roadkill surveys hmm. for many years just to show the areas where most wildlife is crossing for that. But I think about that in terms of like the indigo snake, which is extirpated. Everyone always asks me, how come we don't release indigos on Sanibel? It's because mm. I go, they can't get across the street. The reason we don't have indigo snakes anymore mm. is because they can't get across Sandcap Road. And they're out moving back and forth over the road when yeah. we have all the traffic here over the winter. Because that's their active time. So until we do that, there's no sense in sticking them back on so Sandcap Road. So that's how they, gonna get why you take them the to North Captiva or why they're up there? No, they exist on North Captiva. It's just everyone mm. always asks me, how come we don't release yeah. them here? Be- because we have all these wildlands, all these great places for them. Mm. But we still have the same problem. There's no way for them to get across the street. They could never live on Sanibel east of Tarpon Bay Road. Even though we got mm. lands there, there's just too many people, too many roads. But west of Tarpon mm. Bay Road, they have a chance if we can make it so they can't go across the road. If either you elevate the entire road or you put a barrier up on both sides and have Uh, eco passes going underneath. Well, if you think about that, that has to go from Carpen Bay Road to Captiva. So that would be a major project. Major. But um, so back to the box turtle, do we still have the record for the biggest box turtle in Florida? We do. We have this population of box turtles it's larger than uh any known studied population our average length is just larger than everyone else for whatever reason sanibel has large box turtles 
you hear about this when you talk about island biogeography, huh. where certain animals get really large, certain animals get really small, which is, you know, the explanation for oh, the Galapagos tortoises and the Komodo dragon. For whatever reason, huh. Sanibel box turtles are just large. The actual record was set in 1984 oh. by George Campbell for a Sanibel box turtle. And then we beat that in With- 2016. And that one's like just a little over seven inches, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was 188 Mm -hmm. millimeters. The box Mm -hmm. turtle project is going strong. We have identified three different habitats on, on the island, and we treat them differently. Like we use the whole island averages for everyone else, but then we break the island up into three habitat types. And now as far as all these new box turtles that we brought to Sanibel, we're studying them as well. Some of those were repatriated, which means they were from Sanibel, they were taken and were brought back. And then we have turtles that were translocated. So that means they were brought from somewhere else to Sanibel. So we're doing a study of our wild box turtles versus translocated box turtles versus repatriated box turtles. So we've got all kinds of neat stuff going on. We have radio transmitters Mm -hmm. on many of these turtles we're about to install gps transmitters on a dozen of them so we can monitor where they're at on a hourly basis so we can learn more about is it one of the more extensive fox turtle studies in existence uh not in existence Mm -hmm. but in florida Florida box turtles turtles. yeah and so charles um for you to hear about this type of in-depth research taking place what do you think that the value of that is from your perspective? Well, I, it just astounds me the way uh, science has blossomed over the past half century. It's, uh, it's remarkable the things that we can do now, like Chris was mentioning, tracking and radio tracking and GPS. Back in my day, it was much more rudimentary. And now high tech has really helped out uh, study of yeah and terms. and i'm sure you can learn a lot more about how to protect them that way and if so, if they're poached oh, yeah. possibly and it's important to note that when we're doing these studies on turtles and we're catching them all these turtles are marked they all have microchips they all have notching mm-hmm. on their shells in like a numbering pattern so so we can identify them and they're photographed a box turtles all those markings on the shell are unique. It's, it's exactly like a fingerprint. So even if that notching uh, goes away, if that microchip fails, we could still identify them from photographs. This will help with trafficking. If a large bust is made and they see that there's marked turtles and they always look for marked turtles, they'll know where those turtles came from and, oh, well, that's and they'll come back good to, to us. Know. And if these guys have them and they say, oh, I bred those or, you know, I got those in some other area, those microchips and those notches and the huh. photographs shows differently and it'll catch them. It's actually a deterrent in a way. If we have all these turtles on the island that have holes in their shells that we put there, if a poacher sees that, you know, he knows that it's a marked turtle. He knows that it likely has a, a microchip. The Asian markets that buy these turtles illegally, they don't like turtles that have imperfections on the shell in that. So it's actually Mm -hmm. a a deterrent. Sounds like it could be very effective. 
And we get lots of help from the residents on the island. Like I have lots of people that will see a box turtle and they call us and we go out there. I'm like, if it's not marked, please tell us so we can go out there and process it. And then if it is marked, take photographs of it. And then we get some longevity data by looking at that number. I could say, oh, that turtle's been out there for five years and it's still there and it's moved that far. So we get. Didn't you find one recently that you think uh, crossed um, fine paths? Yeah, one of the turtles that we released back in August um, apparently is is over (laughs) halfway up Captiva now. So we released this around approximately Tarpon Bay Road and and Periwinkle or West Gulf, like in in that area. It's now halfway up Captiva. (laughs) Other studies on box turtles have shown if you move a box turtle. It tries to get back to where it came from. Even if it's hundreds of miles away, it knows where to go. It just starts heading that way. It's not going to make it, but it's going to start heading that way. Other studies have shown that that some of them actually set up new home ranges. So we are studying all of that. Most of the turtles that we've released have actually set up new home ranges. Very few of them have taken off. That turtle on Captiva took off. So I don't know if it went across the bridge or if it swam across, or possibly it was in the road, someone picked it up, drove huh. it up to Captiva, and let it go. We have no idea. This is a lot of really amazing information about turtles here on World Turtle Day. And um, so for both of you turtles, yeah. I know you're into lots of different types of herbs and wildlife, but are turtles kind of your favorites? Or uh, uh, That's probably hard to answer. Turtles are my favorite by far. I mean, I know a lot about the other herps, but in the scientific world, everyone sees me as a turtle guy. (laughs) I didn't. And what about you, Charles? (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. I'm a a turtle guy too. Mostly, of course, my greatest interest Mm -hmm. was sea turtles. I think the only thing that we didn't talk about is um, uh, the pioneering laws that Florida has in place for turtles. Um, that now you mentioned other states are, are trying to emulate. Okay, so this whole thing with turtles of the world getting harvested, it was first noticed by biologists in the late 90s. And there was a few publications out by the people that started the Turtle Survival Alliance, which is a really important organization here in the U.S. They started to notice that lots of foreign turtles were ending up in Asian food markets. A lot of our stuff and a whole lot more of their stuff, stuff that's considered rare. That's kind of where it started, and we call that the Asian turtle crisis. And there were lots of publications on this. Then in the mid-2000s, we started to notice that turtles here were starting to go to Asian markets at a higher frequency. And finally, about 2007, 2008, we noticed Florida softshell turtles were just flying out of the state. I don't forget how many hundreds of thousands of pounds, tons, I forget the exact numbers, were just all going to China. So the people that fish here in Florida for money had moved into turtles. And large amounts of Florida softshell turtles were all going to Asian markets. And the state started monitoring this, and they're like, okay, we have to shut this down. And in 2009, we, we meeting the state, 
came up with this law that no Florida turtles can be harvested commercially. So that does not mean that you can't go out and catch a Florida softshell as, as a pet or to eat or whatever. It just means that you can't catch them and sell them. And that was for all oh. turtles in Florida. And that was the, the big impetus which started to shut down all the other states because Florida soft shells are found in other states besides Florida. They're found in Georgia, you know, and they're found in a little bit in Alabama. Other states started to shut down. And now all the states are sh- shut down except for South Carolina and Louisiana. So we call those the loophole states. So what's happening is that they're still being caught in all the states that are now shut down, but they're saying that they all came out of those open states. So we call those loophole states. The last two strongholds of this have been South Carolina and Louisiana. We pretty much have South Carolina about to shut down. So a new legislation is going to finally get that state in with all the rest of the states so turtles can't be taken out commercially louisiana is going to be a very hard fight it took all kinds of organizations all kinds of movements to get south carolina in on this but louisiana is a whole different animal because lots of people still eat turtles there the alligator snapping turtle is a turtle of highest concern it's protected in every state that it occurs in except for louisiana because lots of people still eat them. So oh. you're allowed to catch one per day there. So you can imagine that alligator snapping turtles are being caught in all these different states, but they're saying that they're coming oh. out of Louisiana because it's open. We have our work cut out for us to get that shut down. We, we actually got them to shut down box turtles because uh, about eight or nine years ago, there were record numbers of box turtles being shipped to Asia coming out of louisiana so we got them to shut down box turtles but we can't get them to shut down all turtles for well it sounds like you're very involved beyond the scope of of senegal and and advocating for turtles oh yeah yeah this is my livelihood here when i'm not Hmm. at work it's your it sounds like a passion Mm -hmm. yes i've been into turtles since i was a young kid I got all my friends in the turtles, and then when they got older, they. So, is that how you and Charles initially connected? Was it a bonding through turtles? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, back when I first got here, I started to look up all the literature. I wanted to know all the names of all the people that did all the work on anything here that had to do with reptiles and amphibians. And Charles LaBeouf's name was all over that. I had already missed out on George Campbell. There's a couple other names like Steve Phillips, talked to him. Mm-hmm. Bird Westall knew a lot about the herps on the island, but I wanted to talk to Charles. Christy Seaman is the one that kind of put it all together. <laughs> yeah, she cut the ice. Well, and right? obviously, yeah. <laughs> you, you gained mutual respect since you co authored this wonderful book. Sure. And this book is still. But we're good um, friends. It's, it is the go to reference book for amphibians and reptiles on the island. I kind of wanted it as like a record. If nothing else ever came out of Sanibel, at least they would have that. So we have like a history piece. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to add about turtles? Charles? No, not not really. I think we've pretty well covered basics. I just uh, wish you. you both a happy turtle day. Well, I thought of one more thing. 
I'd like to bring up that it's kind of what Charles said earlier, that the island has changed a lot. If you think about Sanibel being like between five and 7,000 years old, that's not very old. Animals have been getting here slowly over long periods of time. As far as we know about Sanibel, it was a very dry island. We did get a lot of water over the summer, but a lot of those years, most of that water dried up, right, Charles? It drained off. Yeah, it, and dry. it drained off. And when they dredged the Sanibel River and they put in the weir system, all mm-hmm. of a sudden we're holding water throughout the year. So that opened up opportunities for turtles that probably had it rough back in the old days. I'm sure all these turtles that we talked about got to Sanibel several times over centuries, but they may have not made it or only stayed out here for so long because of lack of water or hurricanes washing them out. But now that we hold all this water in, these aquatic turtles, just they have more habitat. They have more opportunity. I really wonder about the box turtles, like how common they were a century ago. I'm sure they were here, but now that we have all this edge habitat, And what I mean by edge habitat is like we got hardwood hammocks going up against the few open areas. Box turtles, they really like that. So I I wonder if box turtles are more abundant these days than they were back then. What do you think about that, Charles? Well, like I I said, I only observed them, you know, on on roadways and, and things like that. Very seldom would I find one if I was out, you know, just tromping through the brush. But I think you're probably right. The more uh, basic water supply, the more box turtles. I think, I think you can safely say they have increased since my, when I first came here. Okay. Because when you tell me you've you've tagged or marked uh, close to two hundred turtles, it may be more than that now. Box turtles. Then I say definitely that, that the population has increased. All species have increased, and probably even the chicken turtle, although we don't know it. Right. Well, it's interesting yep. to note how the life history of all of these turtles has shifted with human influence and alterations to the interior wetlands. Definitely. So um, yep. if people want to learn more about turtles, where could they find a copy of your book? Our book is at all of the stores that sell books on Sanibel. So Jerry's, Bailey's, and then all the bookstores. Yeah, I think they're available through... Most of the bookstore bookshops, I know Macintosh Books uh, stocks them. Whether they do presently have copies, I'm not sure, but they can certainly order the book for you. So thank you both for uh, joining us on World Turtle Day. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yep. thanks to time. all of you for listening to Land, Water, Wildlife, SCCF's podcast, connecting you to nature. <laughs>